Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 57, Children of Men, Movie Review. This is Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien. That's Yancey Eaton. And this is the Pop Culture Podcast for the Generations. Yancey, uh, what's going on, my friend? Honestly, not a lot. I didn't get to watch any new movies or listen to any new music. Um, I've basically just been working and trying to get my house back together as usual. It sounds kind of boring. I don't have anything to kind of you know lead the show off with, but uh, just... I'm grinding, just trying to get stuff back to back to normal. What about you? What's going on? Uh, we will, I think I told you my wife and I started watching Breaking Bad. We made it. We're up until halfway through season three. And just oh, the, yes. oh, oh, it's so good. Oh, man, I really like that show a lot. And uh, But the thing is, we haven't watched an episode in probably like two weeks at least. Things have just been so crazy. And then The Walking Dead is back, but I don't, we haven't had a chance to watch that either. And then I got all these other movies that we're watching, but you know, the podcast and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Uh, we just got everything's just piling up in terms of stuff I'm supposed to watch. Oh, and then Stranger Things season two, and then as you were saying last week, we got to watch that so that we can get um, Nathan Dawkins on the show, and we're going to do a, a whole episode on on Stranger Things. So I watched the first episode, you know, so we were yeah. able to squeeze that in. But uh, I've got to get around to watching. The Did last. you like it? I liked it. It's good. I mean, that, that I think it's just a very very well done show. I just love the the whole throwback, the whole retro feel of the whole thing. That's I, that's what I like. It's good. Can I just can I just bring attention to one stark difference between you and me? And probably it is more of a generational thing. Of course. Like well, that, watched, that's what the podcast is. I mean, so. Yeah, exactly. It's in the spirit of the podcast, right? So you just watched one episode of Stranger Things or you got through halfway through season three where stuff really starts to happen on Breaking Bad. And you're perfectly content with not continuing to watch. And that, that's something that I, I am not capable of, especially like with Stranger Things. It came out on Friday night. My wife and I, we started watching around 6 o'clock that night, and we were up till, I think, 3.30 in the morning watching all of them. And until finally she's like, there's one episode left. I cannot stay up. I cannot stay up anymore. Let's watch it first thing tomorrow morning. And it killed me because I wanted to finish the series so, so bad. And uh, I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, little did I know that my little snake wife woke up early before me and finished watching the last episode by herself. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, which caused a riff in our house. She did this with with uh, Mad Men, too. We were supposed to watch Mad Men together, and then she just basically took off while I was at work and watched, like, 12 episodes in a day to where I could never catch up. But um, that is the difference between the two of us, where I'm more programmed to just wait until a show has reached its finality and then watching it, you know, binging it on Netflix or Hulu or, you know, wherever, Amazon Prime or something. Whereas you, you seem a little bit more, like, uh, tempered, and you're able to kind of just wait it out and enjoy it, and whenever you find time, you can watch it, or maybe it's just because you have more going on, you have kids. Like, what do you think that is? I know, I think a lot of it's generational, you know, there's that instant gratification thing that you millennials have, I tell you, young man. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, if I look back, I'd love to I'd love to get a time machine and take you back in time. Like, when, you know, you'd watch a show, like, we'd watch Happy Days, and then you could watch Fonzie again for another week. Or, you know, even 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 closer to, to this time. I remember back in 2004 um, when Lost came out and I really liked Lost. I was really into that show. And you watch mm -hmm. it and you had to wait a whole week for the next one. And God, I cannot imagine that. It, it was just the way it was. And that show was basically a cliffhanger <laughs> every single week. And uh, yeah, that's just the way yep. it was. You know, Fonzie just once a week, Ben. Once a week, Fonzie. Oh, those were the days, I tell you. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, are you all ready to get started? 
Yeah, let's do this. All right, here we go. By the way, it's not episode four. It's not a new friggin' hope. It is Star Wars. It is very stupid. It is a dumb movie. I think there's something that the millennial generation is missing out on. The characters are stupid and over the top. It's very campy, Chris. Honestly, I think you would like it. We gotta join the army. I've been smiling nonstop for days. Cruiser and Ox. I've had a lot of uh, FOMO, fear of missing out. For the longest time, we had VHS. Um, I'm six foot one. You're six one. You're six one. Okay, forget it. Let's get Harold Ramis to do it. Okay, so this week, it's your movie that you got to nominate, Yancey. You uh, you came up with Children of Men, so you gave me that one, and uh, so I obviously had a chance to take a look at it. I watched it. I had not seen the movie before that you nominated it, so I'm really glad that you did. I was I got a chance to watch something new for me. Um, so I'd like to maybe just ask you right off the top, why did you nominate this film? Uh well, I think it's one of the best films of the last 15 years, and despite the fact that it was written in 2004 and 2005 and released in 2006, it's one of the most prescient, um, you know, accurate, you know, modern films that are out there. Like, it is incredibly, incredibly present. Everything that's in this, it's, it's themes that are talking about things that are happening right now, even though it's, quote unquote, you know, a futuristic, uh, you know, apocalyptic type movie. Um, that's based in the year 2027. It's still very, very relevant to everything that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean, you, you. I don't know what it is with you. I'm telling you, what? <laughs> we'll get into this a little bit later in the show. But uh, th- this movie was it was good. First of all, I thought it was good. I thought it was one of the, okay. the the better movies that you've nominated so far. And and the thing is, I think it was last week or the week before somebody was saying to me, and I think it was off the show. It was like on Twitter or something with somebody, and they're like, "You just hate all of Yancey's movies." And I'm like, "No, I don't. I thought you've nominated some good ones. I thought." No Country for Old Men was good. I thought The Matrix was good. I thought the District 9 was good. And I thought this one was good, too. It was right up there with those ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still doesn't take away from the fact that the movie is bizarre, you know? And, like, are there no millennial movies that are just normal? <laughs> <laughs> a serious question. It, a serious question. Is that, is, that, is that important to you? Is that something you're looking for in a film? Is, is well, something normal? Well, I, I guess I'm... That, that's not something I'm looking for at all. Actually, that's the, the antithesis of exactly what I'm looking for in a movie. I don't want it to be normal. Yeah, I guess normal, like in terms of just normal situations, normal human situations, you know. Got to remember, like a lot of my background is, I, a lot of my background is in the theater, as you know, Yancey. Mm-hmm. And, and so I'm used to doing, you know, plays that are just basically, all you have is actors and lines. You don't have any special effects. That's all you've got is your voice and your character. So it's play is an awful, awful lot of character study and things like that. So I guess maybe that's where I'm always coming back to. Uh, or maybe movies were just simpler in my day, you know, young man. Uh, I don't know what it is, <laughs> but it just seems like there's just, like I, guess, I don't know if they just got to keep one-upping themselves, but these millennial films, it's just bizarre and weird and all this stuff. I don't know. Weird. Uh, but anyway, so the movie itself, uh, so it starts off, obviously, it's very, uh, it's another dystopian post-apocalyptic movie. Yancey, I tell you, you and these movies. Well, actually, um, I, I think it's, I think it's more of a, real quickly, I think it's more of a pre-apocalyptic. Like, the, the world is on the cusp of collapse, basically. Um, just to set it up really Seems pretty crappy to me, but I mean, what's yeah. going on? But yeah, go ahead. But set world, the world's not ended yet, but we're very, very close. Um, it's based in the year 2027. Uh, the entire world is in complete chaos. There is exactly one government, one country in the world that has any sort of established, um, you know, uh, you know, government and control, and that is Great Britain, right? Uh, so basically, there's it doesn't really touch, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, break out specifically exactly why this has happened. But women are unable to have children. Uh, everyone is completely infertile, uh, and that's like this main theme that's kind of like driving all the angst that you see in this film. 
And so basically you have one country where everybody wants to get into it because it's the only thing that's established and organized in some semblance of, of a normal modern life and everybody else that's trying to get in. Uh, so there's you know the refugee crisis that's kind of at play here. Um, there's all these different themes of hope and the lack of hope and how that kind of morphs what people's actions are. And there's all kinds of allegory and just crazy, you know, crazy metaphors and just there's it's it's saying a lot and it's doing it in a package that where it's filmed incredibly beautifully. The acting is amazing and there's just a lot to kind of delve into. You can watch this film like a lot of the other movies that I've presented to you before, Chris, where you can watch it one time and you're never going to catch everything in the first time. It takes multiple viewings to kind of get the main gist of it. But I kind of cut you off there and like hijack that. But um, so like what, what, what were your major takeaways from this film? Well, obviously, I can say it starts. Well, so it starts off and, you know, the big thing was that, you know, there's an 18 year old uh, it was on TV. Right. And they were saying that's the youngest person on the planet. Now, just to go back, I, I don't know if you mentioned it didn't. I don't think at any point that they actually mentioned the reason why there was infertility. It's never addressed. It's, it's not really addressed, right? You just you just take it, okay, yeah. that's just the way it is, right? And then there's the whole thing, like they're they're mentioning throughout the movie about this this human project, which I guess we can come back to. Um I thought okay, it's funny because last week we talked about films versus movies. And I would definitely say this was a film only because it fits the criteria that I mentioned about last week. And to be considered a quote unquote film, um you you really need to utilize the medium. And, and this one movie certainly did that because um Mainly because the style of the movie, like, like I'm sure you know, you noticed this, but okay, there's that that scene. It's pretty early in the movie um, when they're driving their car out in the country and they're playing that game with that ping pong ball going back and forth. And it seems everything seems kind of you know fun and lighthearted and stuff. And then all of a sudden, that flaming car comes down the hill, mm-hmm. and the gang comes out, and then the whole scene ends with the two cops getting shot, and it's all done in one continuous shot. And I'm sure you noticed that, but the whole scene is done in one continuous shot, you know, which, which is very stylistic, right? And then later on in the movie, when they're in the middle of the battle, I think it was the uh, the uprising, I think they called it. When Remember, he's, he runs and he's hiding in the bus, and then he goes mm-hmm. into that, that sort of blown out building. And again, the whole scene's done in one continuous shot. And I remember there was one scene when he runs into the building, and then there's like, someone gets shot, and then there's like blood that gets splattered onto the, the camera lens, and it stays on the camera lens throughout the whole scene. And when mm-hmm. I was when I was watching the movie, I thought, well, that's just done sort of draw to draw attention to the fact that it's one continuous shot. You know what I mean? Because it stays on the camera the whole time. It's really to call attention to the that shot. But I went and I, I did some reading up on it, and it turns out that when the blood splattered on the lens, the director actually called cut. You you just you can't. They left it in the film. You can't hear it over all the tanks and the gunfire. But they they just continued with the scene, and the cinematographer, I guess, ended up convincing the director. To leave it in the final cut of the film. It's pretty cool, I guess. But uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that this movie, just just to, to play on the, those two things that I talked about, I thought it was interesting that this uh, film was nominated for an Oscar for Best uh, Achievement in Film Editing because there's very little editing in the film. Like, I, you know what I mean? Like, it seemed odd to me. Like, why would this movie be nominated for editing? There's no editing. It's all continuous shots. And the other thing, too, is right. I, it's almost all, like, wide shots. You know, done right. in done in one take. So I don't know mm-hmm. why I'd be up for editing, but uh, so that was my takeaway. I guess I I don't I don't want to come off as sounding like a curmudgeon on your movies or anything like that because I did like too, this movie. too late, Chris. It, we were way past that. Yeah, I know. I'm a curmudgeon. <laughs> we know that. Uh, my takeaway from the movie though is is that it's more style than substance. Ah, that's what I would say. Holy cow, Chris! <laughs> Where do I start? Okay, um, I will agree with you about like the 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 long shots, the long cuts you see right there. That was stylistic. That was by design. And the you know one of the main goals I think they were going at with this 
entire film is foreground and background and how they merge into one shot. So you'll see something we're used to seeing a film from the main character's point of view. You know, he is the protagonist. He is the main character. We're seeing things as he sees them. This film, uh, you know, Alfonso Cuaron, who's he's done a bunch of other stuff. He's actually written for like Gravity and some of the Harry Potter films, a lot of like really like obscure indie films. Um, but he's a fantastic writer. He's a fantastic director. Um, one of the things that he was trying to do with this was to show kind of that duality between every single scene that you see. And one of the things that I have you know, picked up on after like reading forums and, and watching YouTube videos of this over the years uh, after the first time I watched this film was they say always pay attention to the background. Um, and it's really hard to do that in a lot of movies because by default, 99 percent of directors are, are training you. They're showing you what they want you to pay attention to. Right. It's very, very obvious either they do close shots or you literally see like a point of view or you see a small group of people in a room with this. Like you said, because it is so expansive, they're telling you, like, pay attention. There's so many different things that are going on around you to where it, it makes you privy to other people's way of life or, or their viewpoints or you're seeing how certain things affect them. Like we see um, Clive Owen's character, Theo, walking and, and working and you know, just basically living life as apathetically as humanly possible, completely indifferent to everything that's going on around him because he's he's totally disinterested in the world. Um, so, like, as he's, like, casually, like, walking through the streets of Great Britain and, you know, drinking out from a flask and just doesn't care, you see refugees, you know, in basically cages being, you know, shuttled in and out of the city. And, you you know, you see death and destruction and you see all these things going on. And that's why you see these, these you know, wide frame shots, these long, continuous shots of five or six minutes in one cut. Um, it's to build. It's to build up a scene. It's to make you invested. It's to be immersive and to feel like you're in it. And you can see multiple people. Like I don't know if you noticed this, Chris, but how many times would you see like you would see uh, Clive Owen's character Theo and and Key, the the black woman who's pregnant. You'd see them like walking through the streets, and it's the camera is following them, and then it will pan out, and just for a few seconds, it'll focus on you know like a mother who has like her dying son in her arms, or you, you could see people jumping out of a building in the background, or you can see, you know, the inflatable giant pig that, um, you know, it's kind of like an homage to Pink Floyd's animals and George Orwell's animal farm. Like there's so many things going on in the background where it's, it's teaching you to look at, at things, to see that there's always two sides of the thing. There's always a, a different alternative. Um, I, I don't really know how to phrase this in a question, but did you, did you pick up any of that whenever you were seeing this? Did you, I mean, was that something that it came naturally to you or did you feel like it was almost like forcibly like making you see multiple shots in one screen? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And just to build on that a little bit, I thought some of the framing was pretty neat. When they were in that old abandoned school, um, the girl, Key, remember she's outside on the swing? And, and you can see her through the broken Yeah, glass. yeah. Clive Owen and the woman the, with the dreadlocks. I don't remember her name. Um, and they're in one of the old classrooms. Yeah, you could see her out on the swing and she's framed within a hole. You know, in one of the broken window panes, it's actually the same broken uh, glass shape that was used on the movie movie poster, or at least on the Netflix image. That's where I watched it. But um, mm -hmm. but it's got Clive Owen is in the 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 the, the picture, not Key. Um, I, I'm not sure why she was framed that way. I guess other than for style, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Again, that's why I just keep looking back to it. I'm not being a curmudgeon. Um, I'm just saying it's just a very stylistic movie. Not that that's a bad thing. It's just right. that, that, uh, that's my that particular scene. I'm not actually sure what what they were trying to make some sort of metaphor as you know with that but i mean throughout this entire thing like you'll see there's tons of stuff like that where you can see stuff from like michelangelo or picasso or banksy um they use modern and and very very old art and they kind of like seamlessly throw it in here uh there's a scene where he goes to visit his cousin i believe it is who can he works for the government and he can get travel papers for this woman key to get out of the 
uh, out of the town or whatever, right? And you go up there and you see that he lives in this this massive mansion, you know, this this ivory tower essentially. And as soon as you walk in, you see Michelangelo's the David just sitting right there. And um, you know, as you're going through the streets, you see like I, like I mentioned earlier, the the mother who is holding and crying because it's her dying son. You know, that's a direct you know that's directly pulled from the Bible. Or you can see like Botticelli's um. Uh, what is the woman's name? Um, you know what I'm talking about the uh, the artwork. It's like the famed woman where she's she's basically she's like covering her breasts and like her like I guess I could say private areas. Uh, that piece of artwork is from Botticelli. I know oh, I thought that was sorry. I thought that was Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair. Sorry. False. <laughs> no, I mean you're right, but you're you're also wrong. Um, but like that scene, remember whenever Key first shows him, whenever she disrobes and she shows that she's actually pregnant, right? And she's you know she's cusping her breasts and stuff to just, in, in, yeah, exactly, exact just like just way. like Demi Moore did on the cover of Vanity Fair. Same thing. Oh, Chris, you, oh. I love you, dude. You're so <laughs> but um, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing a great job of like saying it, but like I said, there's all types of 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 a physical and spiritual allegory throughout this entire thing. And um, I mean, it really plays on, like I said, the major theme of being hope versus hopelessness and how, you know, depending on which camp you fall in, if you do believe there's still hope, like, um, you, you know, like Key's friend, the the older woman, the white woman with the dreads, you know, she's, she's full of hope or Jasper. He is full of hope. Um, you know, like the drug dealer friend of his, like, those are people who still have something to live for, who are still positive, whether they gra- gravitate towards, uh, you know, faith and being, you know, religious in that regard, or they just try to live life as best as they possibly can and are kind of isolationist, like Jasper's character was, or they resort to like what Julianne Moore's character was, where she was essentially labeled as a terrorist in the town, and you know, she she took to violence to try to promote an agenda. You know, what I mean, like they were bombing people, and it even mentions that Clive Owen's character at one point he used to be an activist, he used to be somebody who was you know rioting and and you know burning buildings and stuff so um it, it's constantly playing between these two different themes of like what happens whenever things start to deteriorate there's going to be all these different people with different agendas different ways they handle it and uh I, I think this movie does a really good job of exploring all of that um you mentioned allegories there i just had a, had a question for you uh mm-hmm. key because it came to my mind i thought is her name key because she's kind of like the key to the future of the human race i, I know it's spelled differently right that's- I think that's very apt. I think that's one hundred percent why they they named him Key. And what exactly? Um, sorry, and go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. And what what exactly is the Human Project like? Because I know at the end the boat that comes up says Tomorrow on it. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's obviously like you know they're trying to replenish the human race or something. But what was it? Because again, nothing was was explained about that, right? It's just kind of left out there. Right. I think it was intentionally made to be pretty ambiguous to where you could make that you know, whatever you want it to be. But they do mention, I think, one line of dialogue in the movie where it talks about like, um, you know, they're like, oh, is it real? And it's like, yeah, it's definitely real. It's like a place where they accept anybody. And like, it's its 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 own place, but everybody is welcome. There's one little line in it. And, you know, if you're not really paying attention, like you will miss over it. But um, after watching it a couple of times, I've seen it. So it, it loosely gives us a definition of what this human project is. And essentially, I mean, you can you can replace the name of the human project with anything, and that's that's just a metaphor for hope. I think that's that is that's the name that they're using for you know people believing in something and and trying to do the right thing. And um, I mean, it's it's completely interchangeable about what it would have been. So something that just came to mind because you were mentioning what how it's very real and how this was real or something. So for mm-hmm. me, that birth scene when she gives birth to the baby, that was real. It was real. Did you notice yeah. that? Like, like that was no George Lucas CG and some fake babies in there. In there, that birth was that was a real birth that took place on camera, was it not? 
I, I mean, I, are you asking me if it was literally a real bird? Yeah, I know, but I think it was. I think it was. I think it was. Sure looked real. It didn't look like it was CG or anything like that. It's like I say, mm-hmm. but uh, um, I should have maybe added this to the trivia section of the show. But do you know what the title means, "Children of Men"? Where that came from? I don't. Uh, it actually came from from Psalm ninety, and it said, "Let me just read this for you, okay?" Because I dug it up. Okay. It says, uh, "Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations, before the mountains were brought forth." Or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world. You know, ever noticed, by the way, just as an aside, in any of these old psalms and stuff, they say thou hadst a lot. In the word. Anyway, uh, uh, so even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, return ye children of men for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past and as a watch in the night. I have literally no idea what that means. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty dense. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to act like that. Why would you take your title from something like that? That doesn't even make any sense. I don't know. Mm. Um, You were talking about uh, Clive Owen and Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is good. She's phenomenal. She's a phenomenal Mm. actress. I could watch her in anything. And speaking of anything, Michael Caine is in everything. That guy is in every movie that was ever made. Yes. I swear. And, and, he, and he's pretty good in this, too. He's, I, I, I mean, I mentioned it before, but like, he's essentially a stoner. He's a drug dealer. He has long hair, and it's yet somehow totally believable. We're used to see him, you yeah, know, like these, like, really, like, upper crust type, yeah. you know, roles and stuff. But, like, he plays it off very, very well, I thought. Yeah, he's definitely sort of channeling his inner John Lennon for the part. There's mm-hmm. ways about it. But uh, so I read somewhere that in 2017, Rolling Stone magazine ranked this movie, Children of Men, as the best science fiction film of the 21st century. Wow. And I wanted to know your take on that, because you obviously love science fiction, and you are a a specialist when it comes to the 21st century. Uh, I I got the 20th century down, Pat, but the 21st century you got. Um, So what are your thoughts on that? Rolling Stone Magazine said it was the best sci-fi film of the 21st century. I mean, I... I I did not know that it was praised as highly as it was. I mean, I think it's one of it's probably one of my top five favorite sci-fi films of all time, simply because it is. I mean, aside from like the global infertility, like that is something that the entire movie is something that could happen now. It's it's a futuristic movie per se. You know, it's only twenty twenty seven. Whenever the movie is it was uh, you know based in, but everything that they're talking about the xenophobia, the nationalism, like the you know the religious zealots that you see in the movie, like the fear of the unknown, you know immigrants, like you know all these things, Big Brother, everything like that that you see. I mean, we're just a stone's throw away from that. I've, there's 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 a, a a very small chain of events that has to happen for society as we know it today to break down in a major way. You know what I mean, like. Uh, you know, the the belittling of like the of free press and a free speech, you know, the silencing of activism, the disregard for human life, like all of those things are, are in, in a microcosm, like we're experiencing those now. You know what I mean? And so I, I, I don't I don't I don't gravitate towards these films just because like I want to see the end of the world. I always see these as like a a warning of, you know, an exaggerated or an expedited view of the way things could be if we keep going on our present course. And that's what I think is like makes this film so, so, so important because it's a science fiction film, but outside of like maybe one or two little like gadgets, like, I don't know if you remember, but like the, the scene where, um, 
Theo's character is meeting his uh, uncle or his his nephew or I'm sorry his cousin or whatever, and he has his son at the table, and the son is like playing like that little gadget. That's literally like the you know the thing on his hands that that covers his fingers and stuff. I don't know if right. you remember Chris. Yep, yeah. That's that's one of the only instances of some sort of like futuristic uh, technology in the entire film. Like it's in the future, but everything basically looks the same. The only difference is is like I said this this global infertility, but like even something like that, not so much infertility, but um, you know, like the overall fertility rate, like if you look in countries, I mean, I was I actually did a little bit of research for this. I knew that this was a thing in a lot of Southeastern countries, but like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Poland, Romania, Croatia, these are all countries with the lowest fertility rates in the world. These are countries that are actually dying where, you know, in 50, 75 years, like they, if, if things remain the same, they won't exist anymore. You know what I mean? Uh, and all it takes is just like some some global event to where we we could be in this boat. You know what I mean? And how are we going to how are we going to treat each other? I mean, one of the main things of this of this film is it just talks about how our thoughts and our actions and our emotions they're guided by what we think is going to happen in the future. So like you know Theo's character like he's incredibly nihilistic and he is basically he's just playing out the days. He is disinterested in his job. He has no interest in money. He doesn't understand why people are collecting art. Or, you know, people are getting, you know, upset about, like, their jobs and stuff because he sees it all as pointless. Whereas you have other people who are activists and they're fighting and they're doing everything they can to try to overthrow the government. And then you see people like Michael Caine's character who is just completely, you know, he's peace, hope, and love, but he's not going to partake. He's just going to live his life as best as he possibly can. So, like, it's it's showing you these different ways, these different paths that people can take. You know, how are you going to... Everybody is thrown into the same world, but everybody has a different reaction to it. And that's what the whole film is about. It kind of challenges you to be like, you know, what would you do in this instance? Like, how would you approach this if, you know, in 15 or 20 or 100 years, society looks like that? I find it interesting that you're what you're saying is, if I hear you correctly, is that you like science fiction films, millennial science fiction films that are sort of rooted in the time that they're set. You know, they reflect some of the the things that are going on in society, and therefore that's yep. what makes them relevant and stuff. See, I've always seen horror movies that way. Like, I've always looked at those, although I guess another science fiction one was like Invasion of the Body Snatchers back in the 50s, was really just an allegory for McCarthyism. You know, right. not knowing who your neighbor was, could you trust them, are they, you know, a communist? And a lot of the teenage slasher films from the 80s, like, there was a big fear of, like, AIDS and sex and stuff in the in the 80s. And those movies really played on those fears that people had in society at the time. So, for me, horror movies have kind of always, you know, sort of filled that role. But uh, but just going back to the, the, the fact that the Rolling Stone magazine called this the greatest sci-fi film of the 21st century, I'm going to throw something at you. I don't even think it's Alfonso Cuaron's best science fiction film of the 21st century. And I, I liked Gravity better than this, to be honest with you. And granted, I don't watch a lot of shit from your generation there, young fella. But uh, <laughs> other sci-fi movies that I personally liked better from the 21st century was I liked District 9 better than this. Avatar and Star Wars The Force Awakens. So th I think there's other science fiction films I just personally liked better. I don't know. That's just my mm. thought. Um, just I want to cycle back to something for a second because I think it's interesting to have some discussion on this. Um, I mentioned earlier about all these movies about this dystopian future and this post-apocalyptic world and all this. So what the hell's up with that stuff? I want to know. I've got a question for you. Is, is this a Yancey thing or is this a millennial thing? Well, I mean, for them to be so prevalent. Well, let's back up a little bit, Chris. Like, this isn't something new that's just 
you know, they've just started making movies like this the last 15 or 20 years. You know, for as long as there's been movies, there's there's been a pop, you know, apocalyptic scenario type films. Like that's always been a thing, whether or not they're more prevalent now. They're, I mean, they're a lot more prevalent now, I think. I think we can right? admit that, right? But but yeah. So like, what, what's, what's, what's a what's a post-apocalyptic Gen X movie like Escape from New York? Like, I mean, I can't think of any other stuff to head. You know, really, I'm being honest, right? Right. It's a sign of the times. I mean, um, yeah. with, with with new technology, with, you know, huge shifts and like, the, you know, the cultural paradigm, like you're going to see like a, a switch in pop culture as well. And, you know, like we're Chris, like a lot of people don't realize this, but I, I have these conversations with my parents and, you know, my siblings and stuff. And our, our interests are a lot different. Um, you know, they like different things. I like different things. Um, as you know, like I like to read a lot. I love science and technology. And like I, I, I genuinely think that people are completely naive to how different the world is going to look 25 years from now, like 30 years from now. You know, I have nieces and nephews that are being born right now where it's I seriously question if they're ever going to drive a car. And people whenever I tell people that they they're completely blown away because all they've ever known is cars. You know what I mean? But think about the, the Ford Model T when it first came out in the early 1900s. People are like, well, it's not going to supplant the horse. We all ride horses. You see what I'm saying? Um, and like keeping that thought in mind, like how different things looked for you, Chris, you know, whenever you were born in what year? 19... 1969. 1969. Okay. Think about how differently things look now. You know, um, the, the pop culture from your generation, your parents are probably thinking, what are they thinking? What, why are they listening to this? This isn't music. This isn't art. This, you know what I mean? You're always going to have kind of like that, that I don't want to say disapproval, but that complete lack of understanding of like what's coming next. Um, but every, but every scary. generation says that. Every generation says that. Go back and go back. You like to read, man. You go back. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You go back and read Socrates. Go back and see what mm-hmm. Socrates says about teenagers. It could be, you could read it today. You know, yep, it'd be sure. the same things. And yeah, I mean, the Model T, you know, but if you really look at the Model T and cars today, I mean, there's still four wheels and a combustion engine. I mean, they're right. a whole lot faster, obviously, and things like that. But um, no, there's no question that technology has obviously gone crazy. I, you know, I mean, I, even in the last I, 10 I, years, right? Yeah, I didn't – I don't know. I didn't wrap that answer up in a bow like I'd like to. But basically, I I think the reason why you are seeing more films of this ilk, of you know the films that I am constantly recommending, um, you know the sci-fi dystopian type things, is because I do believe that we're on the precipice of like another gigantic like cultural breakthrough. Like the the, the fusion of technology and human beings and you know the, the vast overpopulation of the earth. Like there are a bunch of different things that are, are, are coming to a breaking point. And like I said, the world is going to look much, much different 30 or 40 years from now, more so than it did in the 60s versus the 70s and the 70s versus the 80s. You see what I'm saying? We're, we're at a huge paradigm shift now, which it's really hard to explain uh, without like going into like specific details. But um, I, that angst that we're talking about, that uncertainty, and I don't want to say fear. I mean, it's a combination of fear, but also just um, an acknowledgement that things are going to be different. I think that's what's percolating into movies. That's why these movies look like this. And, and so, yeah, and do you, do you think that's, you know, based, is that technologically different, culturally different, or both? both Everything. Both, I guess. Everything, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you go back and watch, I always make uh, jokes about watching the Game Show Network. If you go back and watch old game shows from the 70s, which I've been doing a lot of lately, by the way, um, I found um, our good buddy, uh, Derek Myers, Caveman, who's been on the show, you know, obviously multiple times as a guest. Great guy. You know, great friend. And uh, so he told me about there's this this show late at night. On, do you guys have Yes TV in the States? I think it's an American 
station. Anyway, um, this this show, this this station, Yes TV, late at night, like at like one o'clock in the morning, from one until three o'clock in the morning, shows all these old seventies game shows. So I've been recording it and watching it. Oh my god, they're so good. But my point that I'm making with this is that I watch them and I'm like, man. Man, oh man, has our culture changed a lot. At least it did until this year. No offense, Yancey. Things have really gone to <laughs> in the United States in the last year. But I mean, up until, you know, you know, a year ago or whatever, um, like there was a lot of progress. We'd have we'd seen a lot of progress culturally, the way that we talk to, uh, you know, oh, man, I just I go back and watch those shows. I'm like, man, oh, man, was that a different time? Oh. Man, oh man. Um, so I guess th- you didn't quite answer my question, but I'd like to know. So you think it's more of a millennial thing than just a Yancey thing is, I guess, the thing, right? I think it's more of a, like, humanity as a whole kind right. of thing. I mean, that, like, that, it's not... That like these dystopian films, you know. And not even just likes it, but Chris, like, like we've always, we've we've talked on this, we've touched about it. Oh, every other episode we say this, that it's a reflection of the time, right? So even if it's just millennials, like it's not where it's not that millennials are such a huge swath of the population that it's driving all of the, you know, the content creation that you see in pop culture. You know, these these directors are Gen Xers like yourself. You know what I mean? The the, the people who are paying for these films and acting and, and directing and writing in these films, these these aren't all millennials, you know what I mean? So it's it's not just like millennials are pushing this. This is this is society. This is Hollywood. This is the industry. This is what people are thinking about. This is what's in our hearts. You know what I mean? So um, to, to just put it on millennials, it's like, you know, every single day, like <laughs> I see articles and headlines. It's like millennials are killing this. Millennials are killing that. You know, like it's it's just our fault without ever acknowledging the fact that, you know, it was the generation before us that raised us, that set up this economy, that put these leaders in position. You see what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. there's there's so much more to it than just the, the cultural or the generational divides of millennials versus Gen Xers versus, you know, this group or that group or that country. It's, it's so much more involved than that. And I think the group as a whole that these types of films uh, resonate with, I think it's much, much, much larger than just millennials. I have an idea. You know how we, we throw movies back and forth to each other? And I'm going to throw one at you at the end of this show. And then the, after that episode, then we'll, we'll come back and we'll do one of our top five lists because that's kind of how we, we always do things. Maybe after that, what we should do is maybe I should suggest a Gen X post-apocalyptic dystopian film and then you have to suggest a millennial comedy to me because I everyone keeps saying I just keep giving you comedies right so right. we should look at doing that because as far as I'm concerned just as a total aside now that I'm just thinking of it I'm just ranting right now when it comes to millennial comedies as far as I'm concerned there's only two millennial comedies for me that resemble kind of the, you know how I'm always talking about like those classic Gen X comedies and I bring them up all the time, you know, like Stripes and Ghostbusters and, you know, Animal House and all that stuff um, that you can watch over and over and over again. And every time you see them, you just watch them and you get to know them so much. As far as I'm concerned, there's only two millennial comedies for me that resemble those type of the sensibilities, you know, and, and the comedy and the character development of those kind of uh, Gen X movies. There's only two. One is from 1997. It was Private Parts. I don't know if you've ever seen it. With, I've never even heard of it. <laughs> oh, oh man, it's a, I guess kind of a little movie, but it was with the. It was basically the the story about Howard Stern, and it is so so good, unbelievable. And the other one that for me is 2003 School of Rock. Those two movies to me, like I could just they they feel like Gen X films. Mm-hmm. You just watch them over and over and again. Good character development, good jokes, all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I I still believe that the last great Gen X comedy 
was in 1988, and that was Coming to America. And since then, they just haven't existed, except for those two films. Maybe Old School. Old School comes close, but I think those two are the ones. Anyway, the total aside, to get back to <laughs> Children of Ben uh, for a second, there's one other thing I want to discuss about this movie, and that's the end of the film. I'm curious, because I'm not 100% sure on this one, so I need your take, because you love this movie so much. Is the end of the movie a downer, or is it hopeful? I can't figure that out. I think it's hopeful. I think it's showing that you know, regardless of people's motivations, like you're always going to have people who are choosing to do the right thing. I think that's what that's about. I mean, it intentionally shows like people who are, you know, trying to take advantage of them or like, you know, the cop who was taking them to the island, uh, you know, how he basically turned on them too. Right. Like it shows you that, you know, there, there are always going to be good and bad people. There's always going to be free will and, you know, you're going to have to deal with that. But essentially at the end of the day, people are always like as a whole, I think people are fundamentally good. Um, like the scene but, we were talking about, Chris. Yeah, but it's just you mentioned earlier that Clive Owen's character is the protagonist of the film, right? And, you know, spoiler alert, he dies at the end of the movie. So right. it's kind of a downer, isn't it? Or It's th- a downer, but but ultimately, like, she still made it onto the ship, right? right. So, like, but she we was don't, proof But we don't know what that means. We, we mentioned earlier, we don't know what that means. We don't know what the human project is. We don't know if it's good or bad. Or maybe they're going to take her and do, like, you know, alien autopsy stuff on her. You know what I mean? Like, we don't know, right? But that's but that's aside from the point, though. You know, what I mean, like you're, you're not supposed to get 100 percent complete cl- closure like this. Like I mentioned at the, at the top of the show, it's like this is a movie about hope. So the, the whole thing is about like the human spirit and just constantly prevailing. You know, that sounds very corny. But I mean, think back to the scene, Chris, where they are basically going through the, you know, the uprising and they're, you know, dodging through the city. And like you mentioned, they get on a bus, they're being shot at. They run through buildings. You know, they're crouching, um, you know, by, you know, behind brick walls and whatnot. So. It's this crazy, which, by the way, shot very, very amazing. looks awesome uh, as an aside. But, you know, at one point he 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 relocates key. She's in the building and the baby starts crying. Right. Mm -hmm. There's there's RPGs going off. There's gunfire, AK-47s. There's people dying. There's there's blood everywhere. And the baby starts crying. And then people in the middle of a war zone start noticing this baby crying. And everybody it just becomes completely perplexed and just transfixed in, in awe of this baby. And whenever they actually walk out of the building, there's all these military personnel. They completely stop shooting. Everybody's speechless. Nobody moves. Nobody says anything. Everything commences to like a complete standstill. And I, I honestly, I thought that was the most beautiful scene in the entire movie because like here we are, like these people are, are, are actively engaged in combat and all that stuff is completely wiped away. The, the fear of being shot, you know, the desire to shoot someone else, all that hate and everything like that is completely thrown aside because they see like this new baby and like what the hope that that brings that if this woman can have a baby, there is a hope for humanity as a whole. Because I think it also touches on too, like with the infertility thing, like without children, you know, what future is there? There is no future. You know what I mean? So um, just the fact that she was able to bear a child shows that there is some hope. And regardless of Clive Owen, Owen's character, Theo, dying at the end, I think it still stands, you know, as like a testament to like, hey, human beings, you know, there is a fundamental goodness to us. And like, we will prevail. That's that's what I got out of it. I think that's what a lot of people got out of it. But, you know, it's I like that it wasn't neatly packaged to where, you know, all the main characters just made it out all right. And then, you know, there's one big happy ending. And then you get to see like a fadeaway to where all of a sudden you're good. You know what I mean? Like it's. It shows that life is messy and it's complicated and, you know, in scenarios like this, there's there's going to be casualties. Maybe that's one of the issues I have with some of these millennial movies is the, the ending is kind of just left open-ended. I don't know if I really like that or not, just when it comes to films. Maybe it's just me. I, I've never really thought of that before. We'll have to explore that further. Sorry, you mentioned there in the scene when they're in the building and everything's blowing up and you said, you said RPGs are going off. Okay, so I got to 
what's an RPG? I've always thought that meant role playing game. I thought we got to get uh, caveman back on here. Propelled grenade. Oh, uh, rocket propelled grenade. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm more I'm more affixed to um, you know military terminology being from well know, well growing up playing Halo Halo <laughs> and all that stuff like you kids do. Yeah. Um, the the director uh, Alfonso Cuarón obviously has mentioned that you know he's stated that he believes that the end of the film is not the end of the film. He has stated he thinks it's the beginning. So, I so like yeah, like I, again, to just leave it open-ended that, you know, the other thing I thought was interesting that when the credits start rolling, you hear kids. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you hear all these kids again. So it just makes you wonder, oh, kind of caught me off. I was watching it like late at night and I was kind of caught me off guard. I was like, whoa, what's that? It was all these kids. So, so maybe that means that they did replenish the, the population somehow. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like I said, overall, I really, I did enjoy the movie. I thought it was very stylistic, but again, it was just, it just, again, fits back into that mold of those kind of post-apocalyptic dystopian stuff that's just so prevalent. And I'm just, mm. I'm just curious. So anyway, time now to have some fun with Yancey. Okay, Yancey, you love this movie. I'm going to throw some trivia at you and see how well you know this movie. Uh, some of these you're already going to know. So the director, Quaron. Uh, in, in addition to directing this movie, obviously, he also directed uh, what a lot of people, probably myself included, believe is the best film adaptation of the Harry Potter series. Yancey, which Harry Potter movie did he direct? Uh, is it The Prisoner of Azkaban? Yes, it is. That's right. Okay, so I'll tell you what. I'll make things a little bit harder for you because you're a millennial. There were mm-hmm. eight Harry Potter films. Of course, there was only seven books. Because like, right. they, had, they had to do a money grab on that last one by making it into two movies. That's so dumb. <laughs> oh, jeez. Anyway, so there's eight Harry Potter movies. What number in this series was The Prisoner of Azkaban? Oh, uh, so it's The Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets. I'm going to say the third. Yes, you are correct. You are correct. Okay. okay. Awesome. Uh, Charlie Hunnam is in this movie. He plays the part of Patrick. He's the guy with those crazy dreadlocks, right? Uh, Yancey. Yeah. Which TV series, uh, it was actually produced and shown on FX, is Charlie Hunnam best known for? I don't know. <laughs> oh, man, I thought you know it's Sons of Anarchy. I've never seen that show. Mm. I mean, I just can't get into like a biker type. And to be honest with you, I didn't even realize that that was him because he looks so different in that. Yeah. But. Okay, I'm going to give you an easy one then. All right, a 50-50 question for you. Okay, so Children of Men, it cost $76 million to make. What the hell did they spend $76 million on this movie? <laughs> oh, man, I tell you. Uh, anyway, uh, the film cost $76 million to make, amazingly enough. Um, so a simple yes or no answer here. Did the film make money or did it lose money at the box office? Mm. I think you would... Uh, I don't know if you're trying to play like a reverse, man, I don't know, 79 million. I'm going to say it made money, but just barely. No, sorry, it lost money. It only made 35 million domestically. It made 70 million worldwide, but still did not make its money back. 76 million it cost to make. Uh, Okay, so here's another one. What do these following films all have in common? Okay, I'm going to list four movies. You tell me what they all have in common, okay? Okay, yeah, let's do it. Benchwarmers, Failure to Launch, Barnyard, the original party animals, and John Tucker must die. Four movies. What do they all have in common? Mm. Did they all come out in the same year? Yeah, they did actually, but it's more than that. Can you take it a step further? I cannot. <laughs> they they all made more money at the domestic box office than children. Oh, that's low. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those 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 luminary films, bench warmers, oh, and failure Chris. to lunch. Uh, okay, so I, I already I know you know the answer to this one because you mentioned it earlier, but I'll throw it out there anyway. Uh, in one scene, obviously, we see that giant floating pig balloon. 
Um, mm-hmm. So obviously he added that, uh, the director added that uh, to the scene as an homage to what 1977 rock album you mentioned? Uh, Pink Floyd's Animal. That is correct. You did. Very good. Mm-hmm. So um, like I said, I think, very good job. You know, again, I, I'm not both on nominating the film. I thought it was a good one. And on the answers that you, you, you gave there, um, I did trick you on one. I think there's a misconception out there, as I mentioned earlier, that all I do is get you to watch Gen X comedies. And that's not true. Because, I mean, case in point, I, you've watched Jaws and Blade Runner and The Killing Fields, you know? So, like I said, we are going to come back sometime and I'm going to give you that dystopian, post-apocalyptic Gen X movie for sure. And then you got to give me a millennial comedy. But in the meantime, it's time for me to nominate a film for you. And like I said, there is a misconception that all I do is give you comedies from Gen X. And uh, I'm certainly going to give you lots more comedies, but not tonight. Tonight, I want you to go back to 1976, Yancy. I believe that this is available on Netflix, so your life should be nice and easy. 1976, Martin Scorsese came up with a wonderful movie. We mentioned it recently on the podcast. And I remember uh, Caveman was on the show and said he didn't like it very much. So I'd like to get your take on it because I love this movie. And it's Taxi Driver. Okay, I want you to go back and I want you to watch Taxi Driver. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk about that film, okay? All right, let's do it. That sounds like a good one. Uh, other than that, if anybody out there wants to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter at Yancey Eden or at C. McBrien. You always shoot us an email, Chris or Yancey at popcozierworld.com. Go to popcozierworld.com to get all of our contact information. We, uh, we always like hearing from you and we always answer back. Until next time. This is Chris McBrien for Yancey Eaton saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 